This season of Truck Safe Live is presented by LogRock. LogRock builds technology tools to help trucking companies stay compliant with federal and state regulations. LogRock is easier. We connect to multiple systems like your FMCSA account and ELD, so you only have to use one system. LogRock is faster. We automate tedious tasks so you can use your time more effectively. LogRock is smarter. We notify you of issues like expiring or missing documents before they happen so you can be proactive rather than reactive. Setup is easy and most of our customers are online shortly after signing up. Request a demo now at LogRock.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 22 of Truck Safe Live, the show where we and our guests tackle the hot button issues impacting highway transportation. I'm Brandon with Truck Safe and Childress Law, both of which are dedicated to helping motor carriers develop and maintain cutting edge safety programs. Excited to be with you today, kind of a special episode of the podcast, so I'm glad you're here with me. If you're here with us, be sure to say hey in the comments so we know we're here, uh, you're here with us. And um, yeah, uh, like I said, special episode today, wanted to break down some um, breaking news, uh, regulatory news within the industry with respect to drug and alcohol testing, drug testing specifically, and the final rule that was published last week. Uh, this is May of 2023 when we're recording this, uh, the, the rule last week um, on oral fluid testing for DOT mandated drug tests. So looking forward to uh, talking about that with our guests for today. But before we get there, a few things going on that are worth mentioning. Um, one thing going on at TruckSafe, as always, is our TruckSafe Fleet Compliance Network. If you're not part of this, make sure you uh, check it out, trucksafenetwork.com, also in the App Store or the Google Google Play Store. Just search for TruckSafe, you'll find it. This is a forum for safety professionals, risk advisors, fo- those types of folks to get together, learn from one another, ask questions, and then also gain access to all of our TruckSafe uh, DOT-related content that we are constantly pushing out. Detailed articles, uh, a lot of videos on these types of topics. Uh, so this is free to join and, uh, we're doing a lot of truck safe network exclusive content going on right now. So check that out again, app store, Google play store, and you will find it, uh, in the industry, a couple things going on. Um, international road check is coming up next week. Um, if you're not ready for that, I suggest you get ready, make sure your trucks are ready. They're focusing on ABS, uh, and cargo securement issues this year. Uh, we did a whole show on this a couple weeks ago with Brian Runnels from Reliance Partners. Had a great discussion about some of the top maintenance-related issues that are causing trouble for fleets across the United States. So check that out if you missed it over at trucksafelive.com or the replays are available wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcast, wherever. Uh, check that out. Uh, we also put a detailed article on that on our website, trucksafe.com. You can read more about it there, but just make sure you're ready for road check. We, um, we, we talked about in that show how last year during road check, the three-day blitz where they focus on a particular area of compliance during their road roadside inspections. Last year, I think the number or the percentage of vehicles, commercial vehicles that were placed out of service for serious roadside violations uh, or serious maintenance violations was, was close to 25%. So a quarter of all vehicles 
commercial vehicles being stopped from operating because of a serious maintenance-related issues. Uh, and that causes a lot of problems, as you would expect, not only from a regulatory standpoint, but more importantly, from a highway accident litigation standpoint. So you really need to be on top of that stuff. So check that out. Uh, last thing I'll mention... Uh, two other things, actually. Uh, this came out this week. I think there were a couple of articles on it. I saw um, in some of the industry publications, a new bill making its way through uh, the U.S. House of Representatives called the Drive Act. Uh, looks like it's sponsored by a few uh, House Republicans that would, if it is ultimately adopted, obviously there's a long way to go before we get to that point. It's just a bill in the House right now. But if it, if it goes forward, this is a bill that would prohibit the FMC CSA from moving forward with any kind of speed limiter rulemaking. As, as you'll recall, maybe, um, speed limiters have been on the regulatory agenda of the FMCSA and, and NHTSA for many years now, and we were supposed to see a supplemental uh, notice of proposed rulemaking on that topic specifically next month in June. But um, with this bill making its way through Congress, maybe that pushes it back some. We'll just have to wait and see. But I just wanted to bring that to your attention. We'll have to uh, just see how that progresses. Uh, last thing I'll mention is uh, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter over at trucksafe.com slash subscribe. We are uh, pushing out all of this kind of breaking news as it comes out. When the oral fluid rule came out last week, we pushed it immediately. Just trying to keep the word out on all of these issues that impact regulated trucking companies. So if you're interested in keeping up to date on all of that and kind of our analysis of it for what it's worth. Check that out over at trucksafe.com slash subscribe. All right. So getting right into the topic for today, uh, over the past few years, we've seen a lot of regulatory developments specifically in the area of DOT drug and alcohol testing, particularly with the implementation of the drug and alcohol clearinghouse back in 2020, which has shed light on just how big of a drug and alcohol problem we have in the industry. Uh, the March 2023 clearinghouse data, you can look this up if you're interested in it. FMCSA is publishing the data pretty much monthly at this point. Uh, the, the data from March shows that we've had 192,494 positive drug test results reported to the clearinghouse since 2020. So over a three-year period, we almost, almost have 200,000 positive drug test results posted there most of which are for marijuana, as you would probably expect. And uh, uh, more importantly, the, one, the number that is continually staggering to me is how many CDL drivers we currently have in prohibited status in the clearinghouse, meaning they are not authorized to operate a commercial motor vehicle because they have a drug and alcohol testing violation that they haven't gone through the regulatory process to clear up. There are, again, as of March, nearly 130,000 CDL drivers currently in that prohibited prohibited status. So clearly a big problem. One we anticipate regulators will continue to target through periodic rulemaking. Uh, like I said, just within the past week, USDOT published its final rule on oral fluid drug testing, which is what we're breaking down in today's episode. And to do so, I'm excited to be joined by Patrice Kelly, the lead author of that rule, the longest serving director of the USDOT's Office of Drug and Alcohol Policy and Compliance, ODAPSI, and now on assignment as a Senior Policy Executive Advisor for the National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association. Thanks for joining me, Patrice. Thank you for having me, Brandon. And hey, listeners, thank you very much for joining in. It's an honor to be able to talk to you. Yeah. Um, so as you... 
I was just going to say, can I read my little disclaimer? Go for it. Um, because as a U.S. Department of Transportation employee, I am on detail to the National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association. The views reflected in my discussion today are my views. They haven't been cleared or um, reviewed or approved by the U.S. Department of Transportation, and they don't necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Patrice and I are both lawyers, so we have to start out with the disclaimers for any of our shows. So very important information there. Appreciate that. Uh, For for those folks who may not be familiar with you, Patrice, I I came across you recently. Uh, I've been a a member of Indesa for a while and have always enjoyed the kind of content they put out about drug and alcohol testing. Specifically, I watched a a webinar that you had recently done for them on the oral fluid testing specifically. Uh, So that was very insightful and just I knew I had to get you on here to kind of break this rule down and let people know what's going on. But before we get to that, kind of can you give us your background and how you got involved in DOT drug and alcohol testing to begin with? Sure. Um, Thanks. So I'm a lawyer by training. I went to law school in the Washington, D.C. area, Georgetown. And uh, my first law firm did trucking as well as uh, airline and shipping work. So I always had a strong interest in transportation. And then when I moved into the government, I started with the Federal Aviation Administration. And when I was there, drug and alcohol testing was pretty new. Uh, It was the early 1990s, and frankly, none of the other lawyers wanted to deal with it because they said, that's too much science. (laughs) I like doing air traffic control cases where either the guy busted his clearance or he didn't bust his clearance. That seems a lot more exciting. (laughs) I don't know. It was more like a speeding ticket, you know? It was like either he went below the altitude or he didn't. Um, So I liked the idea of getting into the science and pretty much I've stayed with it since then from FAA now to the Office of the Secretary about 16 years ago. And it's been a field that I've watched go through a lot of uh, growth. And I have to say, you know, it started with tragedy. There were accidents, all three of them related to marijuana that brought us this program. They were two New York City subway accidents and an Amtrak Conrail collision in Chase, Maryland in 1987. Um, I actually personally, separately from that, lost a good friend in high school to a drunk driving accident because her boyfriend um, was so drunk that he decided to play chicken with the train and uh, everybody in the van he was driving lost. So I think I, um, I have a certain perspective about a, a deep respect for transportation employers and operators. I have family who drive um, with their CDLs all over the country, and I have a deep respect, but also um, a deep concern for safety, which I know that your entire audience shares in terms of we all want safe operations. We may have differing opinions on how we get there. But uh, this is about safety to me and a way I've chosen to serve my country. For sure. Yeah, I appreciate that background. I think what uh, a lot of people don't realize, and that is always interesting to me, particularly because uh, I, I work primarily in trucking regulations. So I'm working with the FMCSA regulations a lot, but the, the drug and alcohol testing aspects of it, what folks don't realize, at least in our industry often, is is that they are broader than the rest of the regulations that we're dealing with on a day-in and day basis in the, in the sense yeah. that they apply to all modes of transportation. That's right. Pipelines um, and aviation, Coast Guard, 
mariners are involved, as well as CDLs, school bus drivers, um, and the rest of the family and the rail community and transit. So I was wondering, uh, I mentioned at the start that you're the longest serving director of the USDOT's Office of Drug and Alcohol Policy and Compliance, ODAPSI. Can you explain to folks what is ODAPSI and how it fits into the broader USDOT? Sure. ODAPSI is part of the Office of the Secretary of Transportation. And in my job as director, I'm the first level below the politicals. um, And I had been advising them as to how to handle these safety issues, then also my job as the director was to work with the Federal Aviation Administration, Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, pipelines, Coast Guard, and others to bring everybody together. So as you probably know, in FMCSA, they define which employers are safety sensitive, which employees are safety sensitive, and you know what, how the testing is going to go down what the actual definition of an accident is for post-accident. Um, and it's that way with each of the modes. What our office does, ODAPSI, is we give the procedures for how a test is done so that the same procedures are used for airline pilots as for CDL holders, as for Coast Guard mariners, and so on. Everybody's subject to the same collection procedures, the same uh, laboratory procedures, the same medical review officer procedures. And that actually really keeps the cost down Believe it or not, when I first started in this program, well, I won't go into my history. Let's just say when the (laughs) program first started in the late 80s, a drug test cost about $50. And today, a drug test is pretty close to $50. And that's, I think, in large part because the procedures are the same. We have not customized them, which drives up costs. And also the number of tests going on each year continues to increase. So in ODAPSI last year in 2022, we saw about 7 million tests conducted. So it's an economy of scale and we are very careful not to make huge changes to it. So we can try to keep those costs down and in line with what folks need, because we understand that your listeners and others in the transportation industries are not in business to do drug testing. Drug testing is something that is necessary to help them with the safety end of things, but it's something that shouldn't have to become their overall preoccupation. They've got a real occupation to carry out. Yeah, for sure. And and that's why we have part 40. So folks in in the trucking will know we have part 40 and we have part 382. And they're always asking, why are they so separate? It's because part 40 are the more the the procedural aspects uh, of the drug and alcohol testing program that apply to all the modes. Whereas part 382 for us is the FMCSA's part, small part of that drug and alcohol testing uh, process where they talk about the clearinghouse among other things and and those things that are specific to trucking. you mentioned kind of not shaking things up, trying not to shake things up too much uh, for, for folks, but uh, I do want to spend time. Obviously, the the purpose of today's show is to talk about a, a fairly significant shakeup uh, for drug and alcohol <laughs> testing, which is oral fluid testing rule. You were the lead author on that rule. What was that? What's that process been like? Um, well, first of all, it, it was a very exciting project and one that we had been trying to carry out for a very long time. And finally, everything was able to align properly for us to move it forward. So oral fluid testing gives employers an alternative type of test. It does not mandate that everybody has to switch over to oral fluid. It doesn't end urine testing. 
it's all about employer choice. So the way the process worked was initially I worked with the team to draw up the notice of proposed rulemaking and go out with what we envisioned. And it was more than just oral fluid. There were a lot of other things that we wanted to adjust and make more contemporary within part 40. So we made our proposals and then the public response to it was fantastic. We got 417 comments, which is the most we've gotten for any rulemaking since we rewrote part 40 in the year 2000. And I was part of that team back then too. So 417 commenters who each had many issues that they wanted to comment upon brought the total number of actual subject matter comments into the thousands. And it was fascinating. I personally read every single one. And for those of you out there who wonder, is it worth it to comment <laughs> on a rulemaking? I can tell you that our colleagues in ODAPSI and our colleagues in the FMCSA really read every single comment. And you don't have to agree with us. But yeah, that's the thing. I harp on this all the time to our clients is, you know, if you've got an issue with a rule that has been proposed, that's the rulemaking process. That is your opportunity when it's in the proposal stage to get your thoughts out there. And it's not one of those things where your comments don't matter, where they just get buried and nobody reads them. The agency is, in my experience, and it sounds like in your experience as well, obviously, putting eyes on your comments. And if you have legitimate concerns that they they need to take into consideration, they will take those into consideration. And I think if they just read this oral fluid testing, they will see that. You, would, you and I were talking earlier where you specifically cite uh, or you you quote some of the commenters in the final rule yeah yeah and i think that was important to do i've done that in other rulemakings that i've been working on in the department over the years because i think it really helps to see that you made a difference now some commenters prefer to mark their comment as anonymous and that's fine. You can do that. If there's a rule that really makes you annoyed, you might want to go anonymous. <laughs> but, um, you know, you know, in all seriousness, we're not coming to get you after you make a comment that we don't like. Um, the issue is, you know, if you're annoyed, it's okay to say I disagree, but explain why. Yeah. You know, don't just say that I disagree. But with that said, you know, I've, I've actually even had cases where the courts uh, have quoted back to us from our preamble and they said, see, DOT actually did listen. And this is what some of the people who were gonna be impacted by this rule had to say about it. And we, the court, uh, agree. So, you know, the comments actually have saved me in some of my rulemakings and helped the courts to sustain them because we do make changes based on what our public commenters say. And I think that's so important for people to yeah. know you know, it's and if, if you've been preaching that, thank you. Um, but every conference I go to, that's one of the things that I say to everybody is it's so important to be heard rather than grumbling about the rule afterwards, wonder rather than wondering if you can sue on it. Get those comments in up front because the government really does need to meaningfully address what you think. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Uh, so tell us, uh, the oral fluid testing rule came out last, it was, it was published in its final form last week uh, from when we're recording this. Tell, tell folks what it does. Okay, so the final rule was published on May 3rd, and it provides employers with a choice, with an option to use oral fluid testing. Now, oral fluid testing in um, many people's eyes is much less invasive than urine, because, you know, there, there are many people 
who would come out with an ick factor of carrying their urine out of a bathroom and providing it to a collector so the collector can um, subdivide it in their presence and send it to a laboratory. Uh, oral fluid is going to be a scenario where the uh, collector would pass the individual the collection device and the individual would put that device to their mouth themselves. And so every collection is a direct observed collection. And many people in the trucking industry favor hair testing because it's direct observation. So again, we're this one has been approved by our scientists at HHS. Hair has not yet been resolved at HHS, but this one was long ago approved by HHS and it is giving us a directly observed collection methodology. And some of the other things that we had proposed in the regulation, we adopted. The commenters were very positive about them. In cases where the commenters said, hey, wait a minute, let's use a little caution here. We don't agree. Then um, there were a couple of areas where we pulled back and it was not specifically about oral fluid testing in any of those scenarios, but there were other scenarios where we were trying to address things and the public said, hey, you didn't do the right thing. Um, we're, we're not happy with this. One of them was we said a laboratory, we proposed to say a laboratory could get rid of a specimen after 90 days, saying unless it was challenged, they could get rid of it. Currently, they have to retain it for one year. Well, an awful lot of commenters, including unions, came in and said, we'd like to see those held longer because somebody may not realize that they want to challenge it, or somebody may find out that he or she's in the clearinghouse three months later after they end up in the clearinghouse, and they want to know that they can at least put a litigation hold on that specimen. And so we said, you know, those are excellent points. And we were trying to reduce costs. We were figuring that if people had been notified by a medical review officer that they were positive, that they would do something quickly about their positive. But what we're learning from the public comments and what we learned from the clearinghouse too is that sometimes people don't find out right away. So we stepped back. We did not change that to 90 days. We left it at one year to make sure that everybody had an understanding that the due process was going to be there for them. Yeah. That makes sense. So in essence, oral fluid testing, though, they're, they're mouth swabs, right? Is that essentially what they are? Um, there are different types. Okay. So there's also a device that looks like an inverted Y, sort of mm -hmm. picture a peace sign and you spit into the top of it, and then it goes down into two little tubes. So um, it would go down into this tube, it would go down okay. into this tube, and then it could be subdivided. Here's the key point. In non-DOT testing, oral fluid testing has gone a long way, has come a long way. And people usually will just do one specimen collection with a pad. In DOT, because of our empowering legislation, the Omnibus Transportation Employee Testing Act of 1991, there has to be a specimen that gets subdivided in the presence of the donor. So it can't be from two different sides of your mouth. Mm. It can't be something that is consecutive. Yeah. That and makes it tricky. Yeah, it has to be one specimen that gets subdivided. And we want to see that one specimen go into the mouth and then come out of the mouth and be divided. So that's something HHS, sorry, the Department of Health and Human Services, who are the scientists who approve the laboratories who do the DOT drug testing. HHS has not yet approved anyone for oral fluid testing because none of the laboratories came forward. And again, you know, we're talking about economies of scale. So 
Health and Human Services in 2019 approved oral fluid testing for federal employees. Yeah. Well, there are only about 400,000 of those tests that go on each year. And that was not enough of a profit incentive for laboratories to go get certified because it can cost six figures to yeah. hold your certification. Yeah. So the labs all said, okay, we're going to wait until there are 7 million tests potentially <laughs> in this market. And then here we go. So, yeah. So May 3rd, um, which was the day we published the final rule, kind of gave laboratories a new incentive now to take another look at oral fluid testing and go out and get certified. So as of this point in time, zero labs are approved. No one can start oral fluid testing for DOT. I have a lot of people asking, you know, if you had a crystal ball, when do you think we could expect to see the labs be certified? Do you have any insight on that or no? I don't yet because it's going to depend on what devices they choose. That's another thing too, unless you're talking about a device that somebody just cleanly spits into that inverted wide device. If it has a buffering pad, then there's a special chemistry that goes into that where the laboratory has to have certain chemicals, they call them immunoassays, where um, the immunoassays are going to properly discern which drugs are in or not in the specimen. All that has to be worked out between the laboratories and HHS. So when the laboratories go in, they're going to be certified to work with certain specific devices. So you won't be able to use, if you're doing non-DOT testing right now, chances are non-DOT oral fluid testing for your company program, chances are it's not gonna be the same devices and it may not even be the same labs who are gonna do that moving forward. So it's because there are a lot of ifs in this and think about it, you know, can you tell me what load somebody's going to be hauling in six months? Yeah. Um, not if they're independent because you got to see what the market is going to bring you. And then you're going to be knowing what load you're going to be carrying at that point. So I can't tell you right now if this is going to be just a matter of a short period of time or a couple of months. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if I had to guess it'd be a few months. So for carriers listening that are eager to start using oral fluid testing to satisfy their DOT obligations, where should they be on the lookout for notice? Will ODAPC, I assume, give notice at some point when the labs have been certified? Yeah, I would say that you should expect that. And there's a website for ODAPC, www.transportation.gov forward slash, which is the question mark key. Oh, well, I'll do Oscar, Delta, Alpha, Papa, Charlie, ODAPSI. So www.transportation.gov forward slash ODAPSI. When you go in there, you can pretty easily find your way to listserv and you can click and subscribe to the listserv. It's free. They won't spam you. They're not going to send a good morning, hope your day's going well kind of message. There will only be announcements when it's important to you regarding the drug and alcohol testing programs. So I would strongly suggest for your listeners to plug into that. Also the National Drug and Alcohol Screening Association, the organization to which I'm currently detailed, and DASA will have membership emails that go out. And another thing they do are called membership minutes uh, or member minutes where they, if there's a news flash that comes out, they make sure they get that out to you quickly. And also every Wednesday, they have what they call town hall meetings where Andesa listens to their members and the members engage in discussions regarding drug and alcohol issues. Yeah. So be sure to, if you're listening and you have any interest in this, not only this issue, but drug and alcohol 
broadly speaking, be sure to, to tune into those channels because they provide a wealth of information. I, I've always uh, appreciated all of the good information that they send out. So be sure to do that. Patrice, you had mentioned uh, kind of the, the, the way that we have it structured in, in transportation with the split specimens. I find, I've, found over the years that that not a lot of folks really understand what's going on there. I was wondering if you could take a minute or two just to explain what the purpose of the split specimen is and and how drivers who find themselves in a position where the initial uh, test comes back positive can can leverage that protection that's available to them with the split. Sure, great question. Um, happy to cover that. And as a federal employee, I actually was subject to drug testing too. And what happens is, well, first of all, Congress has guaranteed the transportation industry employees the right to a split specimen. And so what happens is one specimen is taken, whether it's urine or in the future oral fluid, it will be taken and subdivided in your presence. So you'll see a bottle A and a bottle B. Okay. And then A gets tested at the lab. They both get sent to the laboratory together. And then the lab opens bottle A. And they test it. And that's where they come out with your drug test result. If you find out that it was adulterated or it was positive, the medical review officer will be calling you. And if the medical review officer calls you, then, and you don't have a legitimate medical explanation for why you had this result, then the medical review officer will tell you, well, you have the right to a split specimen. Um, being tested and you have up to 72 hours to request this. And at that point, if you want that specimen tested, the cost of testing it are up to you. And that can be a couple hundred dollars, but um, they will go back and they will send that to a second lab that will then independently test only for the thing for which you were positive, or if it was adulterated, the thing for which the adulteration was determined to be. So it's not going to run a full panel again, but if you were a marijuana positive or if you had just way too much nitrate in your urine, that's usually a sign of an adulterant. Um, but again, you have the right to be able to ask for that to be tested and the cost will fall on you in most situations unless there's a collective bargaining agreement that diverts that. Um, yeah. So 72 hours, not that much time. A lot of folks that come to me after the fact have already passed that, that time frame. So if you're subject to this drug and alcohol testing, be aware that your, your, your clock is ticking at that point once you get notified of the positive test result. Right. You know, for somebody who is being notified by a medical review officer that something's wrong with their test, that's going to be an extremely stressful situation. You know, even if you know you used something, it's still going to be stressful if you don't if you don't think you used anything. Maybe you used marijuana and didn't realize that it was in whatever you consumed. I would really recommend if you're having a conversation with the MRO, first and foremost, pull over. Don't drive. <laughs> Secondly, just grab a piece of paper and start writing down what the medical review officer is telling you, because it's going to be really hard. You're going to have a rush of adrenaline. It's stressful. And you, it's really hard to remember everything they're telling you. And you might need a few minutes to absorb it. Also, don't be afraid to tell the medical review officer, hey, wait a minute. Can you repeat that? Yeah. 
or, you know, I just, I need a second to take a breath. Let's talk about this again, because it's going to hit you hard and you have some decisions to make. And if you, you know, like I said, I'll use the example of marijuana where you didn't realize that you had consumed something with marijuana, but now you're in big trouble. You can't undo that, but at least you want to be able to have a chance to calm down, sort your thoughts and have a reasonable discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Important information for sure. I've got a couple of people asking, and I had this down as a question for you as well, kind of going back to oral fluid testing specifically. What's your understanding from all of the research that you did and kind of drafting the final rule in terms of uh, how oral fluid testing compares to your analysis in terms of detection windows and stuff like that? Interesting question. So first of all, HHS, the important thing to us was that HHS was able to come out and say that oral fluid is as scientifically accurate and forensically defensible as urine testing. So in other words, you are going to get a fair and accurate test that will stand up in a court of law. Okay, so that's first and foremost. Secondly, when we when I originally wrote the NPRM and as a team, we went over it, we tried to gather information on windows of detection. We kept going back and forth to our scientists of eight, at HHS and they kept saying, well, that window's right, but then there are circumstances where it's wrong. And then, so we proposed the rule with a window of detection table. And then we decided not to include that in the final rule because None of the commenters really hit it head on, um, yeah. except some commenters thought, hey, on oral fluid testing, it's a really short window. So I can use all the marijuana I want for two weeks straight. And as long as I don't use it right before the pre-employment test, I'm good. Well, it doesn't actually work that way. Yeah. If you're a regular user of marijuana, you are actually going to test positive on an oral fluid test, even if you didn't use it in the last couple of hours. Um, so usually the windows of detection for oral fluid, meaning for all the drugs, you're going to detect them over a shorter period of time with oral fluid and generally longer with urine. And of course, in the area of hair testing, where many trucking companies do conduct their company policies, you have an even longer window of detection. Generally speaking for across the board, it's oral fluid, then urine, then hair. But the reality is, um, with a lot of these drugs, if you're a chronic user, they're still in your system. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things I thought about the rule, you mentioned this at the start as, as kind of a, a good way to look at this, of how this is an optional test type. So this is giving employers the option of conducting either or oral fluid testing or, uh, or urinalysis. They can continue doing things the way that they have been doing if they wanted to. This is just giving them one more option. Why was it important to the department to give them that option rather than just say, we're going to go with this particular test type or another? There were a couple of things. One was that the trucking industry and the transit industry desperately wanted to do oral fluid testing. They wanted something other than urine. Um, then there were a lot of employees and employee unions who felt that urine was just invasive by its nature. As I said, that ickiness of carrying warm urine out of the bathroom and giving it to somebody for them to subdivide in your presence had an ick factor that a lot of people wanted to distance themselves from. Mm -hmm. um, and also to the department from a safety standpoint, we have struggled for years with the people who cheat on drug tests. And 
when you allow someone to go into a restroom facility unobserved and provide their urine, because remember, 97 to 98% of the people subject to testing are testing negative. So generally, we're talking about people who are not drug users. Um, When you allow them to go in and they are a drug user, then it is a lot easier for them to do something to their specimens so that the result will not be positive. Oral fluid takes away that ability to cheat the test. Yeah. because the collector is going to see if you have anything in your hands. They're going to see if they're putting, if you're putting anything to your mouth. And there's also a mandatory waiting period of up to 10 uh, of 10 minutes. So while you're filling out the paperwork and everything else, anything that would have been in your mouth at that point will have dissolved and presumably washed away. Yeah. One of the other uh, things that kind of spurred this on from what I understand, um, and maybe not so much as those two things you just mentioned, but was this whole idea with shy bladder for folks who have trouble uh, providing a urine specimen for for DOT uh, drug tests that we've done those historically. There's been this concept of, of shy bladder where some folks have a medical condition that may prevent them from being able to provide a, a sufficient specimen to be tested. Is that another driving force for, for this type of uh, regulatory development? Absolutely. For the last, oh my goodness, at least 15 years, the community of individuals who have shy bladders due to the psychiatric condition known as pyresis have been asking us to consider something other than urine testing. And um, in this, you know, in the scenario that we're proposing again, remember, now I don't have my DOT hat on. You know, I had to kind of curb myself, make sure that I was um, staying in my lane when I was writing this rule. But I have to tell you guys, if you're an employer, the employer has the choice. The employee doesn't have the choice as to what kind of test is going to be administered. But if you're an employer, have a little mercy for the people who are having a shy bladder issue. If you find out from your collection site, because they're supposed to call you and say, hey, this employee is not able to um, provide a urine specimen, can I go to oral fluid? Or even better, if you have a standing order that says whenever any of my folks come in, they have a shy bladder, let's go to oral fluid. That's gonna make the whole process a lot more humane. The only time in this change to part 40 where we're gonna mandate oral fluid testing is exactly in that shy bladder when there is a transgender or non-binary individual. If you have an employee who identifies with a different gender or is a gender X, a non-binary, then that individual, how are you going to find a same gender collector for them? It's been a traditional issue um, for the program for a long time now. We're taking away that confusion and we're just saying, in the rare circumstance where you have that, the person is going to get an oral fluid test period, end of story. And so you do want to have something set up so that in that rare circumstance where that comes to pass, you would use oral fluid. But again, now I'm just talking to you with the DOT hat off. Think about it. Be humane. You know, be be considerate of somebody. I've dealt with a lot of scenarios where you have combat vets who come back and they've got PTSD. Yeah. And the next thing you know, um, they're in a, a shy bladder situation. And because they may or may not have had prior treatment for it, and if they have not had prior treatment and not been previously analyzed for it, then it's a refusal. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about have- that. And- 
and sorry to put you on the spot here, uh, but if, if they have a shy bladder issue uh, and they're not able to provide the initial specimen, normally under current rules, they would have to get the MRO involved to determine whether there was a medical explanation for it. With the oral fluid testing, uh, once it becomes permissible, are they able to switch immediately over to oral fluid testing if they have the shy bladder issue before they talk with the MRO? Yes, and okay. the, but that is employer controlled. I see. And frankly, for employers, it's a whole lot cheaper. Yeah. Because once you get the MRO involved, in the shy bladder process, first of all, with the shy bladder process, the individual has to sit there for three hours yeah. trying and drinking water, trying to provide enough of a specimen. And then you have a med- you have to get the MRO involved and there has to be a referral physician who evaluates the individual and determines whether or not they have a pre-existing condition that renders them unable to provide that much urine. So just cha-chink, cha-chink, cha-chink. You see the yeah. dollar signs flashing as I'm talking, right? It's like the uh, it's like the gas tank. <laughs> <laughs> as you're filling up the fuel tank, um, yeah. you're watching those numbers click in front of your eyes, whereas you could just switch over to an oral fluid test and obtain the result and boom, you have a fair and accurate test result. So while employers are not being in any way forced to do this, it is a really useful tool to get a test result without driving up your costs. Yeah. And not only in that shy bladder context, but I I get the sense that there may be some carriers out there who, because it's their option, they may choose to use your analysis for certain mandatory test types, but then for other types of tests, I'm thinking like in our industry, post-accident versus random and versus pre-employment, they may choose different test types depending on which kind it is. Right. Like think about post-accident. You've got somebody who has had an accident, obviously, in 99.9% of the cases, not very close to your home base. So now you're sending out a urine collector. You're trying to find a facility where they can go perhaps in the middle of the night, early morning hours to provide a urine specimen, whereas an oral fluid specimen can be done quickly, easily on site with minimal compromising of privacy um, so you've got a much better option. Yeah. And that's the other thing I really appreciate about the rule is how easy they are, relatively speaking, to administer. Are you getting the sense that, because right now, you know, there may be some particularly larger motor carriers that have their own collectors on site. They may, I think you mentioned this in the rule, they may have a clinic on site to, to do that, but that's not very many of them. They're, they're mostly sending them out to third parties to, to do the collections. But with oral fluid testing, do you anticipate that more employers will have somebody on staff that is certified to take those collections because of the ease? You know, it's interesting that you say that because that was one of the questions we asked commenters. And an awful lot of employers came back and said, oh, yeah, no, I am Mm. not doing that because I don't want the liability of somebody in my company doing a test on Joe and then Joe's result comes back positive. And now we've got all sorts of issues in the workplace. Yeah. So a lot of employers said, I don't want the liability of that. I, you know, thanks for offering, but no thanks. You today collect. uh, uh, employers can do their own collections for urine in-house. There is no prohibition on that. We just don't want direct supervisors doing it. 
But employers can do that today. And uh, tell you honestly, very few employers do that. Uh, Coming from the aviation industry years ago, I saw two air carriers who did it because they had in-house clinics. At the very largest of the trucking companies, perhaps they have an in-house clinic. And so they're gonna use um, somebody who's a nurse there in the in-house clinic to do that kind of testing. But generally they don't do their own urine. So even though oral fluid is a little bit easier per se, um, there are still those issues about, I don't want to interfere with workplace friendships and relationships, and I don't want the liability because if I need to fire that person, I need to be able to be objective and, and, you know, clean on this. Sure. Makes sense. Uh, jumping back, I forgot to ask this. Uh, we were talking about shy bladder um, and how how oral fluid testing may help in that scenario specifically. But now we've also got on that side of things, we've got this idea of, of dry mouth. So it sounds like we could have a kind of similar issue with the oral fluid testing where people aren't able to give a sufficient uh, oral fluid specimen as well. Yeah. And that is a possibility. And in that case, then you could switch to a urine. If that yeah, so vice versa. So the option there yeah. is the important part. The issue about um, dry mouth from what the scientists at HHS tell us and what people in the oral fluid testing industries um, and non-DOT testing tell us is much more rare than yeah. a shy bladder. Okay. You know, if you just have mild dehydration, you actually don't have dry mouth. Your mouth may feel drier and you're thirsty, but it's not true dry mouth. You can still do one of these specimens. Whereas in urine, if you just, if you're not properly hydrated, you can end up in this problem. Sure. So, um, yeah, that's an issue. Dry mouth, we have procedures for that, but you can also switch back to urine and get the job done. Great. Um, One of the last questions I had that I get from a lot of clients um, about the rule is understanding about the cost differentials between oral fluid testing and and your analysis. You had mentioned kind of the cost of your analysis test uh, being stagnant, which has been great over the last however many years, 20 plus years. What's your understanding? It looked like from the final rule that maybe you all had initially thought or got the impression that they were going to be cheaper, but then maybe you got some comments that suggested otherwise. Exactly. We thought what we went into the analysis with was what HHS had also used for their analysis, which was about $35 per per oral fluid test. What we heard from the commenters is that fails to take into account that every oral fluid device is something that a collection site or an employer ultimately ends up paying for. Each of the devices today costs about $4. Mm. We're talking about split specimen devices. So we, and those are not yet made. So it could be $8 a device. It could be $6 a device. And those devices expire unlike urine cups. Urine cups never expire because they're just an empty cup with split specimen empty cups in them inside a plastic bag. In this, you have buffering solutions unless you're using a neat device. And so we have the issues of expiration dates and shelf life and a collection site having to throw out devices that they've purchased if they don't use them up in the appropriate time. So, you know, those, that's all 
um, something that we had failed to take into consideration. But with that said, while people said, hey, you estimated too low, nobody actually came back yeah. and gave us hard numbers. So you'll see our economic analysis is more qualitative than quantitative because of the lack of data provided. Um, you know, a uh, couple of quick things. One of your um, commenters or one of the folks who's listening has asked for the ODAPSI website again, and it's www.transportation.gov forward slash Oscar Delta Alpha Papa Charlie. And the other thing is, I'll just tell you guys the way I get it really quickly by looking it up is I'll just go ahead and Google ODAPSI. Again, Oscar Delta Alpha Papa Charlie, and it will give it to you as either the first or second hit. So that's a really quick way to look it up. And also something in our earlier discussions, Brandon, you mentioned CBD. Yeah. And I just kind of want to reiterate, back in 2020, I wrote a CBD notice. If you Google DOT CBD, you'll hit the notice. And it warns people, buyer beware, the CBD is not regulated by the FDA. You don't know what you're taking. And in most cases, it has a significant amount of THC in it, which is going to give you a marijuana positive, And that's going to give you something that is going to send you to the SAP and remove you in the meantime from safety sensitive functions. So please stay away from CBD products. They're not safe for you to use. Yeah. Another thing that I regularly harp on, we've that's probably the topic that we have the most content on out there. I just put a an article out with prepass on this where it, it's a huge issue uh, in our industry. We have so many drivers now that are testing positive because they took a CBD under the impression from the manufacturer's representations on the packaging that it contained no THC, and then they take it, and it turns out it did. Unless and until we get the FDA to to step in and to regulate the manufacturer of the, that product, I think it's too risky for truck drivers to be using CBD for that reason. Because like you said, Patrice, when, once they test positive, DOT doesn't care what the rationale for the positive test was. It's a positive test and, and you're out of a job unless and until you go through the return to duty process. Right. And as you said, you're trying to do the right thing as a truck driver. You're reading those labels and those boxes and they're lying to you. Yeah. Big issue. Um, we're running out of time, Patrice. I really appreciate. It. Is there anything on oral fluid testing that we didn't uh, that we didn't touch on that you need that you would like to touch on? Just to underscore for everybody, it's not quite there yet. You're going to want to stay tuned to hear when laboratories are approved, and you can bet that your current folks who are selling you your drug and alcohol. Um, services, your contractors for that are going to be the ones who are letting you know, hey, guess what? This is now ready. And here's what we recommend you do. So hold tight. It's coming, but yeah. just not quite yet. Yeah, not quite yet. Almost there. Um, last thing I wanted to mention, we had talked earlier about this and I wanted to make sure we gave you an opportunity to kind of hit on it. We, we talked there at the end about the return to duty process. And, and I know from working in this industry for many years that a lot of motor carriers and employers in other industries are hesitant to bring back drivers or, or employees who have previously tested positive for drugs or alcohol because of the liability concerns. And I get that, but I, you had mentioned something interesting to me. I thought it was worth mentioning kind of the white House and USDOT initiatives to get drivers back in trucks following a positive drug or alcohol testing violation. 
Right. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, the White House calls it the Recovery Ready Workplace Initiative, and they are encouraging employers to bring people back to work once you know that they can safely pass a return to duty test. And then they're going to be subject to follow up testing under the DOT regulations, which is also going to help keep somebody clean and keep them in a status where they're going to be able to continue to perform. And, you know, honestly, for a lot of people, they're not ready to lose their career over having a second positive. And so that also creates incentive. So don't necessarily assume that anybody, at least on the federal side, expects you to fire an employee after they have a positive. You can put them through the SAP process at their expense. And actually, as employers, especially small employers, you want to keep in mind that unless you have a collective bargaining agreement to the contrary, you don't have to pay for the return to duty and follow-up tests. You can bill them back to your employee. So that'll further help keep somebody committed to the cause when they know that they are going to be billed back for every test you put them through on the return to duty and follow-up scene. And that's going to help to assure that they're going to continue to stay drug-free for your purposes. Yeah, it's an important topic, especially I mentioned the numbers at the start, you know, with 130,000 drivers currently in prohibited status, that's not an insignificant number of drivers who just are not available now for motor carriers to use. But if they go through that return to duty process, given uh, granted, there are, again, liability issues notwithstanding. If they go through the return to duty process, they have done what the regulations ask of them to do to go back to work. And and from a regulatory standpoint, you are clear as long as you follow that process and do those follow up testing. So important point to, to consider for sure. Patrice, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It was uh, it was great thank information. You, uh, really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate everything you did for your work on putting together that final rule. Glad to see it uh, across the finish line here and uh, hope to have you back on sometime. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It was a team process, and I really am grateful to the whole Odapsi team. And I really want to thank you and your listeners for taking the time today. It really was a pleasure being with all of you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Okay. We're going to wrap things up for today's show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in for a little while, spending some time with us. Um, be sure to follow us on our social, social media accounts, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. We're uh, constantly pushing out the latest highway transportation news and analysis. So follow us there for uh, the latest uh, things like this that are going on in the industry. Uh, also, stay tuned for uh, information about our next episode of Truck Safe Live. Visit trucksafelive.com for details. Thanks again so much to our sponsor for this season of truck safe live log rock really appreciate you teaming up with us that's all i got thanks everybody thanks for watching see you later